On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, certified financial planner, certified investment management analyst, and co-founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, how are you? Doing good. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. It is another great day. Good to be back with you. And you have another guest on the show. I do. I've got Bill Hahn. He is executive vice president here at Northmark in Phoenix. And uh, he's, his focus is on multifamily housing here in the Valley. And he's, he's been in this business for a little while, so he's got some great insight. And real estate's a big topic of conversation right now. And I thought it'd be really valuable for people to hear what he has to say. Yeah, absolutely. You and I have been talking about real estate in different capacities for a while. So I'm excited to hear what he has to say as well. Thank you. Bill, how you doing? Doing great. Thank you, Brent. So, Thanks so for inviting me. No, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to do this. And, and I think this is a great conversation to have because you're doing multifamily here in Phoenix. Phoenix is, if it's not the hottest market in the country right now, it's for sure up there. I mean, what do you view now as what's the state of the market in Phoenix, Arizona for multifamily housing? Well, I should clarify, uh, or I guess pre-qualify my answer to describe that what I do in the multifamily business is that I am a broker of existing multifamily projects. I sell apartment buildings from one investor to another. I'm not a multifamily developer, um, so I'm really not probably qualified to address that aspect of the business going forward. But you are correct in stating that it's uh, Phoenix, Metro Phoenix is, if not the most active, one of the top two or three in the country, the other one maybe being Dallas or Austin, Texas, as far as deal velocity, meaning number of transactions per year, value increases over the last five years, uh, annual rent increases, which good for owners, not so good for people who need to rent apartments. Up until about 90 days ago, I would describe the multifamily transaction market as the strongest I've ever seen in 40 years in the business by far. Not just a little stronger, but like remarkably stronger. But with interest rates pushing up over the last 90 days, we're seeing the market kind of taking a little bit of a breather. Buyers are stepping back because they can't get quite as aggressive on um, their purchases. Uh, I've learned over the years that buyers kind of adjust their agendas more quickly than sellers do. So that's probably going to cause a little bit of pause in the market. We're still closing deals, but they are generally deals that were initiated six months ago or more. So, you know, we're, we're, we're closing transactions that were negotiated, placed into escrow, non-refundable money, uh, earnest money deposits, which makes it harder for buyers to back out. Uh, we're still closing those deals, but as far as putting new deals under contract, it, it's it's definitely taken a little bit of a backward step. 
So, so Bill, you mentioned obviously about 90 days ago, something happened in terms of the market changing a little bit. And I can't speak to multifamily, definitely not my area of expertise, but your basic 30-year mortgage rate for person out looking to buy a house has gone from about 3% to 5.75, pushing 6%. What has been the adjustment in interest rates to finance the kind of projects you're dealing with? I mean, we're dealing with, again, big, much larger projects, a lot of units, What's what's happened to the cost of money for you and your business? Uh, all right, great question. Um, there are many options that multifamily investors can pursue when they want to purchase a multifamily property, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Investors who are in it for the long term hold are probably going to pursue a fixed rate. Fannie or Freddie, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac sponsored loan. Those are generally 10-year fixed rates. Um, but the challenge with those is they carry very large prepayment penalties, They're generally um, uh, yield maintenance type uh, penalties. So if you buy a property with a Fannie or Freddie loan, and then decide you want to sell it two or three years later, it might be very difficult, if not impossible, because you could have a multi-million dollar penalty to pay the loan off. So most transactions in this market over the last five years have been variable rate bridge loans. Those loans are are funded by uh, large investment funds that you know raise money to specifically make mortgages. They might be mortgage REITs. Those loans are tied to SOFR. They're the SOFR index plus a, a fixed spread. Um, and they adjust monthly. Now, rates have been so low for so long that buyers are, have perceived those as fairly low risk. And they also pursued those types of loans because there's generally no or very little penalty. There might be like a 1% exit fee on those loans. And the market for uh, value add properties, meaning you you buy a building that's 30 years old and kind of put some lipstick on it and raise the rents um, and then sell it to the next starry-eyed investor, that's what's been driving the market. So they need these loans that they can get in and out of easily. Now, those type of loans have gone up dramatically by, I would say, 200 basis points. But the, the problem with a variable rate loan in a rising interest rate environment is they adjust monthly. So you know it's kind of hard to predict where you're going to be six months, 12 months from now. So that market is really in an uproar right now. I, I would say that the going in rate has gone up 200, 250 basis points. And, and likewise for the uh, Fannie and Freddie loans, I should have mentioned that earlier. They've also gone from, let's say, a 4% fixed rate at the beginning of the year to something closer to a 6% rate today. Okay. And at the variable rate loans, is there a cap on those? Is it an unlimited cap or some of these rates, some of these loans, I would imagine have your, 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 whatever your possible upside is in those rates, or will these go toward wherever the market takes them? 
there are caps, but the borrower has to pay for that cap. And you, you can pay more money to get a more conservative cap. And generally the lender will make you buy a cap. That will be part of your loan commitment. You know, we're, we're, the, the loan commitment, the term sheet might look like something like we're going to lend you 65% of the purchase price plus improvements that we've approved for you. And your initial rate is going to be SOFR plus 275 basis points. Uh, but you must buy an, a rate cap uh, that limits any increase to a percent and a half a year. Got it. And those and those interest rate caps can be very expensive. Now, the, the kind of deals you're doing, what, what, what were what were cap rates generally speaking on these properties? They, they compressed down toward like three percent toward the end of 2021 for for the that, multifamily market, right? That is correct. Wh- and what, when you think about that, that sounds kind of absurd on the face of it, but yes. And what does a couple? What is a 200 basis point rise in the cost of money? How does what's the correlation there with the cap rate you get on a piece on a multifamily unit you're buying now? Well, if you're looking at it from a conservative point of view, a cap rate should be 75 to 100 basis points over your cost of money. Um, because that gives you a cushion. It gives you a cash flow. You know, if you have a, uh, let's just say a 4% loan on a piece of property, well, your effective, um, what you're actually paying out is closer to 5% because you have amortization. So interest rates go up by 200 basis points. You should, in a perfect world, see a corresponding increase in cap rates of 200 basis points. But in the real world, if someone just bought something at a three cap and now they have to sell it at a five cap, they've lost 60% of their value, which makes a transaction impossible. So there's a lot of variables that go in there and kind of move things around, most of which is the belief that rents are going to continue to go up, occupancies are going to continue to go up, vacancy gets squeezed down so that you could buy that three cap, but in a year, it's really a four and a half. Got it. Got it. Now you've been through a number of these market cycles and where are we? Cause everyone, at least here in the Phoenix Valley, we've got memories of what happened 2007 to say 2009. And I would argue and tell me if I'm wrong with this and I can't speak to multifamily, but at least single family, you had people that, that it was not their primary business. They might've been a hairdresser, nothing wrong with hairdressers, but they probably should have known five or six houses playing on flipping them as investments. To me, from the outside looking in, it seems like real estate development in the Valley has gotten a lot smarter and it doesn't seem like there is the excess in supply that we might've had it at other phases. Do you think that's, do you think that's pretty accurate in your space right now? It's accurate, but I would definitely put some qualifiers on it. 
Um, there's an old expression that real estate cycles are seven years long and real estate memories last about five, which is what gets people into trouble. And um, if you look back at this upward cycle that we're in, I would say that the bottom of the real estate, commercial real estate market, um, and this is across all product types, was after the financial crisis was probably 2010. So this has been an unprecedented 12-year run. And yes, the Phoenix market is much larger, uh, much more diverse. There's a lot of new industry here. So real estate people are always saying to each other through these cycles that, you know, this time is different. But in the three or four cycles I've been through, they really haven't been different. When they go down, they go down. So that remains to be seen. Uh, having said that, yes, we're in a market that has low unemployment. There's still a ton of people who want to move here. Um, we, have, we, we don't have an oversupply. There are roughly 20,000 apartment units that will be delivered this year almost all of which is A-class, expensive, you know, $2 a square foot rents, the stuff you see going up in you know, downtown Phoenix, um, downtown Tempe. The people who are getting really squeezed are the, the more average income, median income people that might be living on the west side of Phoenix. There's not anything significant under construction out there. So those older buildings out there are the, the rents are getting squeezed. So, yeah, I think it's different this time, um, but we're still in a situation where things could just take a breather because the people who bought in the last 12 months probably overpaid by today's standards. So we just kind of need to see where that's going to settle out. Sure. And, and where a lot of these projections, I know last year, you know, rents in the Valley were up 25 to 35%, were a lot of the projections in the multifamily space based on that continuing or, or, was, the, or was the idea that, that obviously, you know, things can increase in price so much, but eventually people's capacity to pay is going to be impacted. It, it, like at what, at what, what do you think were sustainable in terms of rent increases in this Valley right now? Or have we hit it? Um, that's a great question. I don't think anybody in my industry is dumb enough to think that rents can keep going up 20% per year, but they're probably predicting six or seven, which is still extremely high on a historical average basis. And you're absolutely right that the rents are going up faster than wages. So eventually the rents have to, they're, they're gonna hit a ceiling somewhere. If yeah. you look at a building that's, let's say it was built in the eighties, so it's 35 plus or minus years old and it's out on 43rd or 53rd Avenue. Um, I don't see a situation where rents can keep going out there and outpacing the local residents' ability to pay 
and that people from the east side of town are going to move out there and and keep the rents going up. Sure, sure. Now, you mentioned to me once, um, I think it's probably even maybe 2019, pre-COVID, I'm pretty sure this was, and we were discussing the state of the uh, of, of the multifamily housing market. And I'm going off memory here, so I could be totally wrong. But the stat that you gave me, at one point, we had a big cycle in multifamily in the 1980s. And you had mentioned that actually more units were coming online back in the 80s when the size of this metro area was a fraction of what it is now. Um, am I remembering that correctly? That's exactly right, uh, which is a, a great point. I, I mentioned that there's roughly 20,000 units coming online this year. And the population of Metro Phoenix is 4 million plus. In 1980, I think it was 1983, when the population of Metro Phoenix was probably in the $2 million, $2 million population, plus or minus, uh, there was something like 35,000 units that came online. Um, so, uh, but <laughs> that was right before a gigantic crash. But that yeah. is why if you, if you drive through areas of the city that were built out in the 80s, which would be uh, the beginnings of Chandler and the west side of Phoenix, say between 43rd and 67th Avenue, you see tons of these 1980s era apartment buildings that all pretty much look alike. Right. So that was back from that cycle back then. Yeah. Now, you know, one, of the, one of the concerns that I, that I know that people have that I'm speaking to is I think we've got a very strong memory, at least in the financial markets, of 2007 to 2009. And really for the last 15 or so years that I've been in the business here out in Phoenix, a question, and I think it was particularly felt acutely in Phoenix because also what happened in the real estate market, because it was a lot more significant than it might've been in the Northeast even back then. But mm-hmm. people really people will remember that. And going back to that cycle, you're, you're mentioning things have changed in the last 90 days. Was Did the music stop faster in 2008, you know, leading into the housing crisis or as that was developing? Or has this tick up in interest rates and inflation, some other things we're experiencing in the economy now, is that on-off switch as dramatic as it was now 15 years ago? Now, it was much more of a turn the lights out while you're in the closet and you're immediately plunged into deep darkness in 1988. And there were a couple of other things going on besides what was going on in the financial world. Yes, lending froze up. So if you were in the process of trying to sell or buy a building, all of a sudden there was no money available at any cost. I mean, lenders just put their pencils down. In Arizona, uh, um, at the same, within the same time period, we also had a very ill-advised immigration law that drove the numbers, uh, I, I think the, the average number of estimates of uh, number of people who left the state because of it, somewhere around 300,000. Was this 1070 the, back then? Yes, yes. Okay. And you know the people who left the state were the ones who were living in these modest rent buildings 
on the fringes of town. So all of a sudden, those buildings suffered tremendous vacancy. And, you know, they couldn't service their existing debt. And then we also had a significant overbuilding situation. Right. So, you know, the foreclosure uh, rate from 2008 through 2010 was gigantic. Uh, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of buildings failed and then had to be kind of cycled through the lender's ownership or, um, you know, management and get them back on the market over the next three years. Right. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a much bigger shutdown back then than what I foresee happening here. Like I said, I, what I see happening now is, you know, I think the phrase I use was maybe we're taking a breather. Right. I mean, one of the things too with 2000, 2008, 2009, as you mentioned, the banks and the lenders just put their pencils down. And I mean, part of that was they had to because they can't mm-hmm. lend, they, they, had, they had to maintain certain capital requirements in order to lend any money. And you had back in 2008, 2009, you had companies that depended on their banks for you know inventory replenishment, bridge loans for payroll and stuff if they, if they had a business where their revenue was really chunky. And those could have been perfectly great relationships for years and years, but the banks literally could not value their asset book because there was zero market for it. And mm-hmm. so they, they had no choice. They had to stop. Um, and I, and I, it's interesting for you to use that term, turn the lights out, because that's kind of always how I, I felt it was if you need to get access to capital. It, it wasn't a question of were you a creditworthy borrower or not. It was a fact that just the banks could not, they just couldn't lend any money, <laughs> period. Now, today, though, the kind of deal, the one thing that I think is interesting, and, and tell me if I'm wrong with this, but there's definitely this public financing through your traditional banking channels that everybody thinks of. And there's this ever increasing gigantic pool of private money that's out there, which, right. which I think is getting a bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, probably, it's probably bigger than a lot of the public money right now. Um, it, are you seeing that too in terms of the kind of deals you're doing? Yeah, these bridge loans I was talking about earlier uh, are generally funded with private money. Okay. And just a ballpark, what kind of private money versus public money, what percentage of the deal flow are they involved in? Is it 50-50? Is it 30-70? Like how big, how big is that private money in, in uh, getting these kind of deals done? I would say over the last year, over the last year, private money, bridge loans, debt funds accounted for 75% of the market. Government-sponsored entities like Fannie and Freddie, maybe fifteen percent, and the other ten percent probably spread among HUD, banks, and insurance companies. I don't. I see very little insurance company money in multifamily. Is that is that something new? Because I always thought many big insurance companies, their you know their asset base is tons of real estate. Were they traditionally bigger players in, in multifamily? Uh, you'd have to go way back. Okay. Yeah. And I, and I think that um, insurance companies are more inclined to put office buildings and industrial buildings in their portfolios than multifamily. Okay. And any reason that you think that's the case? Well, on industrial property... Um, you know, very often they're subject to 20 year leases. 
to class A tenants. And I think insurance companies like that security. Multifamily has its ups and downs. Retail has its ups and downs. Got it. Yeah. So more of the stability of those cash flows. Right. Yeah. Now, in terms of for the Arizona market specifically, I've got a theory that I think that the competitive advantage that certain states now have over other states is it's only, it's almost like the wealth gap in essence. It's, it's, becoming larger and larger and larger, larger. You can't really compare these days, like a Youngstown, Ohio, you know, versus what you have happening in Phoenix, right? Partic- particularly with, with the amount of like really big business we've got here. I mean, you've got Intel, two foundries, you've got Taiwan semi, you've got lucid, you've got, you've got, I mean, these are real jobs. This isn't when I first arrived in the Valley, it was real estate, you know, retail and tourism were kind of the big drivers. And I think that the biggest economic driver we have here in the Valley now is, is manufacturing. It's like light manufacturing coming in and, and tech. Is this impacting or is this, is this making an impact both on out-of-state money, even, even though things have, have slowed down here a bit, out-of-state money coming in and wanting to get involved in this market? And then also now the kind of renters that are coming in and that are, that are filling the units that, that you're brokering. Well, there has always been... Um a high percentage of investment from out of state. I mean, it's, it's as long as I've been in the business, uh, it out of state money represents probably 80% of the market here. There aren't that many homegrown, large real estate investment companies. Got it. Um, there, there's been, there've been a few that have popped up in the last five years just by, smart young guys taking care of a, or taking advantage of a booming market that, that have put together pretty big portfolios. But historically, it's been out-of-state money. Now, as far as are these better, higher-paying jobs driving occupancy in our newer, higher-end apartment stock, the answer is, my answer is probably and the, the reason I'm not like giving an emphatic yes is that geographically, the new apartment development is not convenient to where the new Intel plant is or the new Taiwan semiconductor plant. So I, I picture people who work at Intel owning a house in Gilbert or Chandler Got it. as opposed yeah. to renting a high-rise apartment in downtown Phoenix. So who's moving to downtown Phoenix? Because actually you, you bring up a great point. A lot of this development <clears> that's <throat> happening is happening. You know, it's out in East Valley or it's up North. And, and that's where a lot of this, at least the technology related stuff is happening. And the industrial stuff is happening out in the West Valley. Who's, who's the tenant living in downtown Phoenix these days? Well, the university is dr- driving a lot of that. Um, both, students who come from wealthy families and people who work at the university. There is a pretty large tech component in downtown Phoenix. And, you know, downtown Phoenix has become modestly cool in the last 10 <laughs> yeah. years. And I'm not, you know, it's no odd, but it's, it's way better than it was 20 years ago. So, you know, there's, there's a good vibe down there that's drawing a younger crowd that might live in downtown Phoenix, but, you know, work, you know, commute out of the downtown area to go to work. 
Yeah, you, you bring up a great point when I first moved out here to people that aren't from the Valley that might listen to this. You know, I came here from New York City and it always, I love Arizona. I'm a big fan of Arizona, a huge proponent of the state, but it always concerned <clears throat> me that anybody coming into Arizona that thought that they were getting a good experience by being in downtown Phoenix, and we're talking now 2007, 2008, you must've thought this state was awful because <laughs> yeah. downtown Phoenix was pretty awful back then. And you're you right. <clears throat> There you should is have a, seen it in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> yeah, I, can, I can imagine. But there is kind of a cool factor, at least. Like now you can go down there and you can catch a concert and there's some great restaurants popping up and, and there is some culture and some nightlife and some things happening down there. So that's, that's been one area where I think that Phoenix, downtown Phoenix anyway, um, for the better has, has changed remarkably in the last 10 years. It's been, it's been pretty incredible. Do you think ASU has been the big driver of that in terms of what Michael Crow has done um, moving do. that campus over there? Yeah. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And T Gen. And, you know, you've got, you've got some really cool stuff happening down there for sure. You know, I guess, you know, in closing, at what point, so you're dealing primarily, obviously, in existing, existing units that are out there um, brokering those deals. But there are people coming in that are obviously going to build new buildings. Given what's happening in terms of inflation, price of raw material, materials, supply chain issues, all this type of stuff that anybody that's either tried to do something to their house or build something in the last year or so has experienced, is that kind of putting the brakes on new development or can, can you speak to that at all? I don't think it's putting the brakes on it. It's, it's a challenge and it's drawing out development cycles, but you know the cost of lumber has actually come down somewhat in the past 60 days and materials are more available than they were in the bottom of the pandemic. So I, I just think that um, the developers are probably stretching out their construction cycles, but a lot of these deals, they are, they are being developed by big companies that have a lot of, power over their vendors. So they're going to get the lumber before you and I are going to get exactly what we want when we go to Home Depot. Right. So now at what point, if we see, you know, we saw the 10 year treasury, which at least in my world is what you know, fixed incomes traded off of basically, you know, we were below 50 basis points at the bottom of COVID. It peaked out a couple of weeks ago at about 3.5%. It's come in to a tick over three now. Um, but at what point does at what point does the deals the deal kind of deals you're doing go from just simply slowing down to being something more serious than that? What, what, where how much higher can interest can the market absorb in terms of an increase in interest rates before everybody takes a step back and says, you know what, at these prices the math just doesn't pen out? That's a really difficult question to answer. Closed a deal last week um, where the buyer secured a fixed rate loan from a bank, and the rate was five and an eighth percent. Excuse me, it was six and an eighth percent. And I thought, boy, that is really, really going to be a tough deal to make work. Um, I, I think that if we see another 200 basis points. There's going to be some serious um, shifting in the market. Can it absorb another 100 basis points? Maybe. 
And the reason for that is if a seller bought a building three years ago, it's worth, it was worth 50, 60% more at the beginning of this year. So if the market retreats 20%, they're still in the money and they still right. make the sellers at the higher rate. I, I think the people who are closing deals today at January's prices might be on the edge of um, buying themselves some sleepless nights. Sure. Yeah. Well, there's been, there's, there's been a few of those this year. I know, I know for sure in my world, I think that's uh I think that, you know, my take on what the Fed is doing in terms of raising interest rates, you know, I think it's a wake up call, quite frankly, that um, at least in my business, I think we probably needed that because you had, you had interest rates extremely low for so long. And we've been in this mode really since the financial crisis, where I can literally go back and look at all of the big corrections that we had, at least in the equity markets. And the Fed always stepped in. You know, they were always kind of there and they, they would immediately turn on that liquidity spit, spigot or get a lot more dovish in terms of what they're saying. This is a case where, you know, the Fed, Fed, Fed raising interest rates does nothing to alleviate supply. Just doesn't. They can't, they can't do anything about that. That's going to have the, the global economic system is going to have to reboot to get those supply, supply chain issues fixed. And I think as people burn through savings, they're also going to go back to work and that's going to help labor shortage and things like that. But they can at least have people reconsider what exactly what their demand might be. Um, and at least I'm, I'm more optimistic in terms of the longer term inflation and where rates are going to go, because you mentioned lumber prices are going down. All these industrial metals are, are creating, they're all going down. And I, I do think that the, this inflation that we had in the seventies was embedded in the system for a decade or more. It's going to be, I, I believe if the fed does the right thing, it might be easier to squeeze some of that out this time around because it, it hasn't had as long to take root. Um, do you, Am I on the right? Am I thinking correctly with that? Do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. So let's leave this on an optimistic note here. So, so uh, obviously, probably well needed pause after after a really great time to be a real estate investor in the multifamily space in Phoenix. Um, yeah. How, how do you feel about the trajectory of the valley and how things are going to look in this part of the world five years out? Oh, I think five years out, we're gold. I mean, you know, it, barring some natural or international catastrophe, um, yeah, I, I think that um, assuming interest rates are going to settle out at some equilibrium and people continue to move to Arizona to, you know, for the lifestyle or to avoid high tax states. Um, and the, uh, the inventory continues to go up by 20 or even 25,000 units per year. I think that can be easily absorbed. Um, if wages go up three, four, 5% per year on average and rents continue to grow at some modest rate. I'm, I'm very bullish long-term. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And uh, Bill, I really appreciate appreciate you taking some time out of your afternoon to have this conversation with me because it's uh, 
it's, it's, I know it's very important to people in Arizona. We love our real estate here and to get your insights on what's happening uh, in the multifamily space is really helpful. So thank you. You're very welcome. Fantastic discussion. A ton of great information. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today and, and presenting this to the audience. Brent, of course, thank you for facilitating this and, and uh, bringing in your guest. And our last thank you always goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.